I'm Joseph. And I'm Nick. And this is Fish Jelly. Uh-huh. How are you? Uh, I'm good. How are you? Okay. Today is Juneteenth, mm -hmm. which also happens to be, it falls on Father's Day <laughs> this year. Um, I knew, I, I, I woke up knowing it was Juneteenth, but I had forgotten <laughs> it was Father's Day. I saw my mom this morning and she, when she got in the car, said, oh, happy Father's Day. But uh, it's Juneteenth, mm -hmm. for people who don't know. Yeah. Juneteenth uh, is a celebration of when sort of like the... F Juneteenth is interesting because I attended like an online seminar last week um, about like diversity in marketing and uh, there was a component. It was specifically targeted around uh, marketing two black people and then there was a segment about Juneteenth but it's a it's a complicated uh you know we can now call it a holiday it's a federal holiday second year yep yeah uh Joe Biden Joe Biden signed it into law last year but it's an interesting holiday because for many black people it I mean it's triggering when you think about what it represents what it signifies yeah so for people oh Jesus what was that for people who don't know, um, so Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, mm -hmm. which was to free slaves. Mm -hmm. And news traveled slowly back then, which is another point of contention for someone like me when I think about it. Mm -hmm. But it, there were regions of the country where obviously slaves did not get this information or uh, it was not enforced until much later. So Juneteenth celebrates when what is said to be sort of the last area in Galveston, Texas, where slaves were freed. Like they understood they were free and it was enforced. And that was on June 19th, 1865. So nearly two years later. Yeah. So I think for many people, someone like me, you know, so first off, don't walk up to a black person and say happy Juneteenth because... Is anybody doing that? I don't know, but please don't do that. Um, you know, maybe some people are okay with it, but I think it, you know... It's an opportunity to recognize the, the history and to educate people. And reflect. And reflect. Yeah. But I don't know that it's, for me at least, it's not like I want to go have fried chicken and watermelon. and Like, I don't think that that's cute. It's not Cinco de Mayo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no. And I think for me too, it's like, you know, the 4th of July has always rubbed me the wrong way. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like... It's not inclusive. You know, it, I mean, it doesn't really represent the experience of many Americans living in this country. Mm -hmm. So while I love being an American and I feel like this is a great place to be, it, you so know. There's still a long way to go. To talk about freedom in this country and then the date that is celebrating is like, wow, there are many people at that time who were e not free. Even the displaced date that it's celebrating uh, is really kind of arbitrary considering all the shenanigans that were pulled in this fucking country to try to enforce slavery in a different way. Well, so then... <laughs> Do you know, know, what, I, you know yes. what I'm talking about? Like, it's not like, oh, it was, it was, it ended and then we had these stops and starts of progress. It, that was, it was not like well, that Well, that's what I wanted to talk about is, you know, when we think about, first of all, in the mid-1800s, news did travel slowly because there wasn't the internet. There's no Instagram. You know, there wasn't email, there wasn't... So, yes, but, at, you know, many people question, well, how did it take so damn long? 
Well, because because clearly, those in power didn't want it. To, clearly, to be known. slave owners didn't want to lose um, this free labor, mm-hmm. who they didn't have to respect in any way. So, you know, to think about Juneteenth is to also think when those slave. I mean, even up, even when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, until years after, you know, the response from slave owners wasn't swift and kind. No. It wasn't like, yes, you're free. Let me help you. No, these people were being met. These slaves who are now freed were being met with a lot of violence. There was a lot of lynching. People weren't given opportunities to live and work freely. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yes, you know, it's being enforced that uh, these slave owners can't have slaves on their property and not pay them. But Well, and then the history of displacement that happened from there where black people had to uh, migrate to uh, you know, if we, we chart this back historically, even to this moment, even, yes. even the migration of black people from the South to California, like all of the, the, had a hand, there was a ripple effect that was in place through all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And many people referred to what was called the scatter. So once these slaves were freed, again, it wasn't a smooth no, no. transition. So there was a lot of violence and oppression still being enacted on these black American people. So a lot of that is conjured up when I think about Juneteenth. Then I also think about the stops and starts within our history within the last, you know, 160 years of like just how, how much hatred and racism blacks have faced in this country. So, like, the end of slavery was not, like... And I'm hoping many people already know this, but the end of slavery was not sort of the beginning of black people having equal rights and freedom. So, no. it's just a very... And then, you know, someone like me would argue that black people in this country still don't have full equality. So, it's, like it's been a very long time. Oh, well, I mean, the, the voter suppression that's still going on. Right. The, 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 it, the criminal justice system, all the things, right? Access to health, fair health care or compassionate health care... On and on and on. So I think when I think about Juneteenth, I think about all of those things. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, part of this seminar I attended last week was talking about how businesses can speak to Juneteenth in a way that is respectful, but ultimately helpful. So there was a lot of market data, like consumers, specifically black consumers and what's important to them and feeling like, businesses are addressing these concerns and then following through. So there were a lot of examples of businesses that, you know, during Black History Month will do a few posts and donate a few dollars and then they don't do anything else. And then when you follow up the next year, there really has been no change. But then you get companies like, like a good example was someone like Sephora, Mm -hmm. who has committed to being much more transparent in their hiring practices and uh they have come up with some really interesting um and what i think are beautiful ads one of which is paying homage to beauty obviously because it's sephora and how much of it has roots in like black history so a lot of the things we see now you know if it weren't for 
black beauty, mm-hmm. these things would not be mainstream. Paying honor to that, but I think what was even more important was the transparency and like showing the number of people of color who have positions, like executive positions, and being very transparent. Like last year it was 40, you know, maybe it was not 40, it wasn't that high. <laughs> it was like 11% and this year is 13%. So that transparency does make people feel better about the progress. But then you have other companies that just commit to like, well, we're going to donate 100000 And then you see uh, like a, a year later when we revisit their practices, they can't really speak to anything they've done except to give another check for 100000 So, yeah, I guess I could go on and on, but I, I just think it's, it's a very important um, occasion to reflect on. To solemn. But don't do what Walmart did, which was last month. Walmart released a series of products under their Great Value brand, one of which was a Juneteenth ice cream. Was there a watermelon something in there? No, it was red velvet. <laughs> but, and then, you know, it has the colors and black bodies, like uh, uh, abstract black body, black body celebrating. Mm-hmm. And clearly uh, not appropriate. Not appropriate. To sell this cake. <laughs> to sell this ice cream. But, but there were a number of other products. And I just think, like, to capitalize on something that... Well, it's like what, what businesses do with pride. Like, don't you can't just slap rainbows on these shorts and say... <laughs> but I, I think this is, a, this is an instance... And even pride, too. I mean, when I think of... Well, we're going to get into it for our secret movie, so I'll save it. Yeah, I think it actually ended up but being anyway, a perfect intersection of pride yeah. and Juneteenth. So we'll talk about that. So I'm uh, moving on. And then Father's Day, I don't have much to say. I don't talk to my dad. Uh, oh, you do. To yeah, a degree now, now I do now. i got to make a phone call today. But um, it's just such an interesting thing because there's so little fanfare for Father's Day compared to Mother's Day. But Well, in this house. <laughs> well, just in general. Uh, but anyway, moving on. So I was reading that Jennifer Aniston is getting slammed for comments she made during a Variety interview. Mm-hmm. She said she was asked about like celebrity and um, I think it was in reference to like the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Well, really, it's the Bill Clinton scandal. We shouldn't always say her name, but mm-hmm. um, she says... I always say I feel lucky that we got a little taste of the industry before it became what it is today, which is just different. More streaming services, more people. You're famous from TikTok. You're famous from YouTube. You're famous from Instagram. It's sort of almost like it's dulling our actor's job. So basically saying like there are people who are famous for nothing. And then people are slamming her because, you know, to remind everyone, her parents were actors. So she's a, a nepotism baby. Mm-hmm. And someone like me could argue, since I've never seen Friends, the only thing I know this lady's good for is selling smart water and a vino. And then she has her living proof hair care line well, hair for that same yeah. hairstyle she's had or same hair color she's had for damn near three decades. So, you know, I just thought that was interesting. Well, you know, since, you know, Friends is a, a ripoff of Living Single anyway. And Friends is a ripoff of Living Single. Hello. But... It's interesting to hear people shit on like social media and influencers because the reality is these people put in a lot of work into something that people are consuming at a rate that is much higher. More people are watching TikTok videos than watch Friends, okay? So clearly consumers, audiences like what, like the content they're getting. And it's not for us to judge like, well, you're stupid or you don't know what you like. It's like, that's what people like. And if someone... I don't know. I, I just think it's really shitty 
to not acknowledge that times have changed Mm -hmm. and that's it. Times have changed, but to sort of like try to, at least in my opinion, for someone to, you know, it, it's always the older generation who wants to compare and talk about why newer things don't make sense. When really, I think, you know, my perception of a lot of things is like, we need to let young people decide. I feel like there should be a cutoff age. Like when you hit 45, you shouldn't be allowed to be I don't, no, no, no. I don't agree with that at all. That's dangerous. Then all of these people, especially older women that don't have voices, get totally cut out of things, especially in the United States. If you're in Europe, maybe. But no, I don't think that's a good idea. Okay, let me be more specific. I feel like people... I think everybody has a contribution. Everyone has a contribution, but I think that it's like... Because everybody needs People to see, who don't have a stock in certain things. But everybody... Like when we're talking about healthcare... Sure, but everybody needs to see a reflection of themselves, no matter what age or color they are. Yes, of course. So, but what I'm saying is that we see a very clear picture of who is in charge and who makes decisions. And I think that an 80-year-old person commenting on that's a different problem though we're talking about like cultural critics and not like political power i'm talking about sort of all of it and just recognizing that just because you know this damn near 50 year old lady who was super famous from one television show she was on for a while and then has rode that way for a long time hawking other shit for her to say that like people nowadays don't like have anything to offer and they're just famous for no reason is not really fair because that bitch started on the movie Leprechaun then she got cast on a TV show that was a rip off of something I else think and then it got super popular I think unfortunately she's kind of a bad example because of the privilege that she does come from but there are other people that uh, have had to work there say like Lupita Nyong'o for instance or somebody like that who has had to work because they didn't come from anything and there's probably I'm saying better someone like that. me shouldn't but, have a, an opinion necessarily as my opinion shouldn't have as much weight as someone who's younger than I am. And we're talking about like how to pay for college or education. Like let the young people decide what they need. Like that's all I'm saying is that I think we need to like sometimes take a step back and realize like who are we talking about? She's talking about a younger generation of people who are now celebrities. And it's like. Put yourself in their shoes. Yeah, but they're not at the same celebrity level that she is because they're not getting her paychecks either. So there is that. But also, you know, there is something to be said about somebody that's instantly famous for one thing they've done on one platform. So was she. Okay. And I would argue that people nowadays on TikTok and are more famous than she is. And these people make millions of dollars. These people make more money per, like whatever she was making, a million dollars per episode. There are people on TikTok and YouTube who make more than that. And they have more viewers. Whatever ratings Friends got in whatever years it was out, 90-something to 2000, whatever, there are people who get more engagement than that show did. It's iconic because there were fewer outlets. And she speaks to that in her little uh, excerpt she gave about how there are more, um, that there are more services, more people. So, yes, during her time when there were only like what... 10 channels on the TV that most people saw, yeah, that a show like hers would have more impact. But nowadays, it's even more remarkable that there are people who get hundreds of millions of views with all the different options out there. But you're right. Everyone's voice needs to be heard. So I misspoke. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that it's interesting how people always want to relate everything to their own experience when it's like, but we're not talking about you. 
Sure. We're talking about people today who are finding celebrity and influence on these alternate platforms that you're used to, trying to make money and be known for something the same way you were, lady, and you're not putting yourself in their shoes. Like... I think it also, that gets down into uh, discussions of though what, you know, what is an artistic contribution or what, it, what is a creative contribution or, or somebody just trying to get attention. It's, there, there are also delineations there that are worth speaking to that I, I wasn't really prepared to speak on today. Uh, but, but I have very, uh, you know, I think strong opinions about people that, you know, what, 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 part of yourself are you putting out there and for what reason is it just to be famous or to be notable because then you know that's something that you have a limited offering and that you have what what is the what is the contribution what is the, what is the integrity behind it is there any okay but i think you're also you know potentially placing integrity on artists who you do have an admiration for and a respect for that may not even be there like your favorite filmmaker might have just started making films because they they didn't want to do anything else and then somehow they were just good at it and they have a style that you like and you're placing this artistic integrity and value on them that they wouldn't place on themselves it just so happens that this is my style of filmmaking and you like it or musicians like you know stereotypically as generations go by, we all criticize newer music, right? Like someone like me only listens to 90s music, basically. So then if you ask me about contemporary music, I would say, well, I don't know anything on the radio. I don't like it. But the reality is that music is for, we can all have different tastes and younger people have different tastes because they have different influences, right? I like 90s music, because, 90s music and early 2000s because it, a lot of it samples stuff from the 70s and 80s, which is the music that I listen to because of my parents so same thing for teenagers now i don't know i i agree but it, i, it, I agree with it's you not too. that i think that the importance is intersection and where uh we all have common interests uh and, and and things to say that are worth hearing and yes young people have something to say but i think the frustration that you know is that the you have to know something of the past as well sure but sure but I think that's a separate conversation. I think getting back to Jennifer Aniston, I think there's this idea that people who are on TikTok or YouTube, that it's just like, oh, they do nothing. And all of a sudden they're millionaires who... Yeah, I, I agree. And it's I don't not, agree not, with that because nothing, as someone but... who makes YouTube videos, like it takes a lot of work and time to do these videos. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... These I, people are putting in a lot of work. To be clear, I'm not defending Jennifer. No, I don't think that you are. I'm just trying to make a point that I think that there's this sort of I thought that like these people are just doing whatever. But it's like, no, they're planning skits. Yeah, everything feels fake and staged, whatever. But these people are planning these things. It takes time to set these things up. YouTube videos take a long time to edit, upload, all the things, right? Depending on the kind of videos you make. And so I just don't like this sort of attitude that like, just because you weren't on a popular sitcom in the 90s, you don't know what hard work is. Like, I, I don't think that Jennifer Aniston is the person to talk about hard work. And then you, like, sit well, in your... Well, it's also not like she's chosen a, a variety of different kinds of scripts and, you know, because her name could finance a project, technically, and she's not putting herself out there in that way other than something like a few, ago, a few years ago, something called Cake, where she's uh, has facial disfiguration. But, uh, you know, like... And I don't know this lady, and I'm not saying she's not a hard worker. I'm just saying that it's interesting that 
older people, including someone my age, would be like, wow, they don't do this. It's like people, we don't know. I'm not a part of that world. I'm not 20. I don't know what 20-year-olds think about and what's important to them. So I think that's the point I was trying to make. Well, Because we all only think about what's important to us. And it's like, that, well, what's important to you may not be important to a 19-year-old. But that's fine. You And you should... You should pursue. So, who's advocating for the nineteen-year-old? Well, well, they need to find their own voice and advocate for themselves, just like everybody needs to advocate for themselves. And I think you need to. It's not about staying in your own lane. It's about really pursuing what's interesting and what's conducive to your own uh, creativity. If you're an artist, unlike, you know, fine, Jennifer Aniston doesn't like TikTok or YouTube, but she's also utilizing it, like Madonna, like. I don't know. I think I'm thinking too, like, so the example I think I was thinking of when I made that original comment that didn't quite make sense is if we think about like abortion rights, I feel like maybe only people who could actually be confronted with needing an abortion should talk about it. Yes, of course. So hearing some 70 year old male or female talking, it's like, well, you don't have to worry about that. You're not going to be pregnant with <laughs> and have to terminate this pregnancy. So I feel like the, the demographic that's going to be confronted with that is probably an age group that's under 40, right? So it's like, maybe that group of people should have the biggest say in what, but I know we can't do that. I know we can't say, oh, you're not allowed to vote on this abortion law if you're over 40. But I just think that this attitude of like- I don't know, that, that's an interesting thought because- It's like someone like me shouldn't necessarily have an opinion on how school children are educated because I don't have children. Well, then I, and I also don't really like having to pay taxes for schools when I'm not contributing to them. Well, I don't know if that's fair because we also don't want a bunch of stupid kids running around. So if it's about community... <laughs> that's happening regardless. Sure, so. but if it's about community... <laughs> Education systems. If it's about community, we should all be concerned about who's in our community. I think the bigger issue is like we're overpopulated and people keep making kids and they don't need them. But anyway... I just thought it was interesting because I like people are dragging her. It's just funny to me. But moving on, did you? You don't use Postmates, and neither do I really. No. But I happened to see on Postmates um, a couple weeks ago because I think one night we were here, and I was like, "Oh, if I could find like a dessert, I would order it," and I didn't find anything. But Postmates had a bottom-friendly menu, as in homosexual bottom. Yeah, for Pride Month. <laughs> <laughs> um, a post that they wrote about it says you shouldn't. It said you shouldn't miss a good meal for a good time. That's why this pride we've teamed up with this doctor and this other person to create the world's first bottom-friendly menu. Yup, it's real. Hashtag eat with pride. And of course, it was like stuff that's high in fiber, not a lot of dairy, just basic common things that would make sense if you're going to bottom. But uh, it, they got backlash because like some person on like TikTok is saying that they created the bottom friendly idea. It is just like, I mean, I don't know. All I, when I first saw it, I thought, oh, this is actually something that I don't find obnoxious because all these brands are posting rainbow, whatever, and selling bullshit items with rainbows on them. I felt like, well, at least Postmates is doing something that seems somewhat helpful and cheeky in the vein of the community. It didn't offend me. I, I thought it was actually kind of cute that that's their take on Pride Month. Well, that is what all that's really going on. <laughs> so, so, so I thought that was funny. Um, okay, RuPaul's Drag Race All Star Seven. Mm -hmm. So we watched episode six, which was Total Request Live. So the queens had to pair off into two groups, 
and they each had to perform a song in the style of like what was popular in the year 2000. Mm -hmm. So one group did a song called Titanic, which was like a slower song. And then another group did a song called Together Forever, which was more sort of traditional of like early 2000s, like pop dance music. So I think that one made more sense. The top two uh, last week were The Vivian and Evie Oddly. But before we get there, the two winners from last episode got two legendary legend stars. Mm -hmm. And they were told that they'd have to give one to another queen. So uh, Raja gave hers to no. Evie. Uh, yeah. Oh. Right? That's right. Yeah. Raja gave hers to Evie. And then uh, I think Jinx thought she was being slick giving one to Jada. Okay. I think that's shady. So it makes sense that Raja gave hers to Evie because Evie had zero. Can you imagine if neither of them had? <laughs> that would have been... That would have really been shitty. <laughs> yeah. It would make... It made the most sense to give it to the person with none because now you've spread out the potential thinner. I think Jinx was being shady giving it to Jada. Mm -hmm. Because and I think Jada sees... I mean, Jinx sees, sees Jada as less of a threat. Because Trinity had helped Jinx with a... Right, because Jinx said, I'm doing this because she's been so sweet. But it's like, well, mm. I mean... Yeah, Trinity helped you make your dress one episode and has been helpful in other ways to you. Right. You didn't give it to her because she's more of a threat. Yes. So they lip synced to oh so the runway was a night of a thousand Dolly Partons which was interesting. Because well, previously they did that with Madonna and J Lo, right? They've done that with Madonna and J Lo, yeah. Um, I thought that was interesting. The Vivian, I think, looked the most like Dolly Parton. I think Raja and Trinity, their dresses and hair, were more like Dolly Parton. Yeah. I thought Jinx looked... She was doing something like early 80s Dolly. Jinx looked like Shelly Winters. Yeah. In the 70s. Yeah. Like, who is it? Was it Vincent Camby said Shelly Winters looked like a sad bowl of pudding and whoever slew Auntie Rue? Oh. I always think of that. So, um, the Vivian and Evie Oddly are the top two again. And they are... If I forgot to mention that. And they lip sync to Dolly Parton's Why'd You Come In Here Looking Like That. The Vivian did a great job. Yeah. Because she really did look... She was emulating Dolly. She was emulating Dolly. So she wins. And this lady blocks Jinx. <laughs> Which we saw coming. Right. Because Jinx blocked Vivian the last episode. Yeah. So they're going to be doing that back and forth. So watch, watch neither of them win because they keep getting in the top two blocking each other. Yeah. And then some other queen slides up in from the rear. But I guess that makes for good TV. Yeah, that makes me think Jinx might not win because, you know, even if Evie had won, we were thinking she might give it to Jinx. But uh, yeah, that, that might be what stops the front runner. Or, you know, I, I anticipate more shenanigans with these legendary legend stars. Right. Yeah. We don't know how many episodes there are. I mean, looking at Wikipedia, I'm told that there are 12 episodes. Oh, my God. So we okay. still have uh, six more to go. I guess five, not including the finale, if 12 is the actual number. So, yeah, a lot could happen. All right. Um, I finished Legendary Season 3, so we have a winner. You didn't really watch it. You watched, did watch the last episode. I watched three episodes altogether. Altogether. So, the 
the top two houses that went into the finale were um, the house of Yamamoto and Juicy Couture. And what's notable about Juicy Couture is they're a Kiki house, which I didn't know anything about that. But apparently in the ballroom scene, there are like Kiki queens and those are considered like, like a tangent of ballroom that's like not as uh, formal. Like a latchkey kid? No, I'm no, it's kind of like how the ball has categories and yeah. it's very much like there's a protocol. The Kiki scene is more like they're doing it for fun. So I think the competitive component of the Kiki scene is missing. Mm -hmm. They're doing it more for fun. Like they just enjoy ballroom, like style of dancing and the community of it, mm -hmm. but they're not competing. Mm -hmm. So of course, ballroom looks at Kiki as like, well, it's not real if you're not competing. Sure. If there are no winners... If there are no legends and icons, then, then it's not real. So but does a, does a tree fall in the woods? Right. But Juicy Couture had a superior house during season three five times, which makes them, I mean, that's the most that any, you mm -hmm. know, compared to seasons one and two. This Kiki house had were superior house the most. And then in the final episode, which I thought was quite good, um, yeah, they did their thing. Kiki Palmer looked so good. Kiki Palmer has been such a good judge. Mm -hmm. She seems very sincere and like she really is like... Well, Megan Thee Stallion was a good judge too. Yeah, I don't think Megan Thee Stallion was a... I, I don't think she was able to articulate a lot. A lot of her commentary was very basic. And sure, sure, sure. So, But then the sincerity and, and, was there. The, the, the sincerity was there. I, I do think she had an appreciation for ballroom. But a lot of her critiques were just kind of like, like, yeah. were you paying attention or are you just like giving a score because that's yeah. how you feel? Whereas Kiki, I think, is really looking. And also, Kiki is a singer and a dancer mm -hmm. and has a long acting career. Mm -hmm. So I feel like she's a lot more focused on like, she talks a lot about cleanliness, which is mm -hmm. precision and the drama of things. So I think... And then because she can dance and sing as well, I, I feel like she really is a good judge. And then, of course, you know, if season four came and La Roach was not part of it, I wouldn't be mad. I don't anticipate that. I don't need Jamila either, but... Child, Jamila is good for nothing. I know she is uh, like a producer, so I don't see her going anywhere. No. And, you but know, her it, critiques and her scoring is so all over the place. Beautiful woman, but nice gowns that always look the same, girl. But her, No, well, it's the hair. She that, Yeah, she always... Three seasons and how, what, 20, 20, uh, 20, I think 30 episodes total and has never changed her hair. Anyway, okay. So, in the Sorry to This Man section, there is an entry. Oh, because uh, in the review of A Wounded Fawn, I was referencing, because they do, Lenora Carrington and Max Ernst. It's true. Max Ernst did not die in a concentration camp. Uh, and I was, uh, I think, just not thinking, uh, speaking out loud about Lenora Carrington's uh, written experiences in a book called Down Below, which I read this week. Uh, but yeah, he, he lived until 1976. However, he was in a concentration camp twice. Uh, and of course, if you don't know who Max Ernst is, he's a Look it up. surrealist painter uh, who was in a relationship with a much younger Lenore Carrington, uh, who went, you know, had a period of time where she did go insane and wrote about those experiences in a, a Spanish asylum uh, in 1943. Uh, she also lived uh, into the 90s, uh, somewhere in there. But 
yeah, just fascinating people. But the way she speaks about him, it's like he was dead to her for a time. So, Films released we didn't cover. The Good Neighbor. Yeah, God, the poor publicist for this kept begging me, and I'm like, I don't have time. Uh, but Jonathan Rhys Meyers, it's a remake of a 2011 German film. Uh, didn't didn't get to it. Brian and Charles. I saw this at out of Sundance this past year. It's I thought it was a bit twee. It's about this lonely man who creates a robot friend for himself. That's this huge hulking uh, robot man that likes cabbages. Uh, but it, directed by Jim Archer. It's fine. You have you have to be in the mood for it. Lastly, Jerry and Marge go large. Oh, God. We've seen... Oh, the commercials on Hulu. Paramount Plus. Oh, sorry. Paramount Plus. Yeah. Every time... I, I've seen that commercial like 10 times I know. Now. And I'm, every time I'm like, ugh. And every time I'm like, I am not interested. Yeah, that's true. Um, I feel like, God, doesn't... Annette Benning is worthy of something better it's than It's about this. an older couple who find some loophole in like the lottery system. But then now there's like a rival, younger, like group of people who caught on. The... The trailer is terrible because it's alluding to something that like the tone is off. Like, I don't know if this is supposed to be a comedy or a thriller and what are, what loophole did they find? Like, are they making millions of dollars? Like what, like how high are these states? It seems like it's not really working. Uh, but, uh, I do like Annette Benning, even Brian Cranston, but that looks like poo poo. Uh, and every lottery film that I've seen has not been good. Like, not lottery ticket with Bow Wow. Was he little Bow Wow then? And you know Bow Wow's real name is Boward Woward. I knew you were going to say that. Um, <laughs> That's not true, but every time I see that meme, I laugh. Not not lottery ticket, not lucky numbers with John Travolta and Lisa Kudrow. Um, but, so we didn't make time for this, but I was like... I was looking up who directed because I'm like, God, this looks terrible. It's David Frankel who lucked out with an awesome Meryl Streep performance in The Devil Wears Prada because if you take that performance out of the film... It's not a good film. Uh, and also did Hope Springs with Meryl Streep. And also did that terrible Marley and Me movie with Jennifer Aniston, our friend. I meant to mention in the Sorry to This Man section. Well, it can really go anywhere because it's, it's kind of its own thing. But for the movie Good Luck to You. Leo Grand. Leo Grand. There were a lot of comments about... I think what I said, what I said was misinterpreted. Somewhat. I mean, I said the words that, you know, uh, what's her name? Emma Thompson. Essentially, like people are taking it that I'm saying she's too beautiful to not be sexual. Mm -hmm. And I can see how that was like, that's how people took it. That's not what I meant. I think uh, ugly people can be sexual, too. Like, that's not what I meant. What I, I think what I meant was or what I know I meant was the character Actually, played by yeah. Emma Thompson it feels like that actor couldn't remove herself from like sort of the sexual energy that she sort of naturally possesses. Like that woman, Emma Thompson, has an energy to her that seems a little more confident and like worldly mm -hmm. than the character she's playing. And that translated through the screen. And I think there, there were a lot of comments, some of them I removed, about oh. like, just like not being... Uh, like not really understanding like how a woman that age would feel. And of course, I'm not a middle-aged woman who's not having sex. I'm just saying that as someone who's very familiar with sex and probably more familiar with the prostitute in the movie, it just read a little off to me. 
And yes, that's me projecting what I would have preferred to see, but that's also every fucking movie I talk about. Every movie I talk about, I talk about what I would have preferred to see if I didn't love it. So, yeah, it's interesting. She, I agree. I think there's something off, even in how it's written, too. She is able to articulate something so well. And I think it, it messes up where she is continually doing this performative thing in front of this prostitute when, I, I don't know, there... We also get such a limited sense of this this person based only in these parameters of this hotel room that, uh, you know. Anyway, moving on, you watched some films for Tribeca, like for fun. I did. The winner was uh, Good Girl Jane, which I have a screener for, I'll, which I'll probably get to soon. But You um, want to talk about these four films? Sure. I watched Rounding, which is the next film from Alex Thompson, who reviewed his film, St. Francis. Um about uh, intern resident that clearly does not want to be and help somebody with this kind of euthanasia venture that goes wrong and kind of has a nervous breakdown about it. And it's a, it feels like a well-meaning film that just never coalesces well. And I didn't review it because it just, it made me uncomfortable in all the wrong ways. And yeah. Next is something called Three-Headed Beast. This was interesting and I watched randomly directed by Fernando Andres and uh, Tyler Rugg, if, if it's Rugg, am I saying his last name right? Uh, but it's about a uh, heterosexual couple that have an open relationship uh, that kind of go, gets out of control when the male starts to have a loving relationship with another male. Oh. My computer's about to die. Do you want to continue while I try to figure this out? Sure. Uh, then there was a kind of a, I guess you'd call it a, Jewish horror film called Attachment, uh, about a, a, a young Jewish woman that falls in love with this has-been Danish TV star, uh, and she, the the young Jewish girl seems to be under the influence of a mother who's mentally unstable, and it ends up being kind of like a, the Dybbuk version of Sebastian Lelio's Disobedience with both of the with Rachel Weisz and Rachel McAdams. Uh, I, I feel like I liked the idea of it, but I I, I don't know it. It, it didn't do enough of something for me. I think I was a lot more interested in this Polish film called Woman on the Roof about this older woman who's a nurse who's landed herself in significant debt and foolishly decides to try to rob a, a, a bank at knife point one day and she ends up being caught uh, and, then, and then tries to kill herself and then doesn't do well. Uh, yeah, it, it, I, liked it, I liked that more. Okay. Was that Woman on the Roof? Yeah. Okay, so moving on to things you watch for fun. Uh, White Men Can't Jump. Yeah, I put that on the other night. Because uh, I know Rosie Perez and Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snips were at the Oscars this year for uh, presenting an award, if you remember, because it was... Is it the 25th? No. 30th. 30th. <laughs> what year is it? The 30th uh, anniversary. And you know it's being remade this year uh, by the same guy that's remaking House Party. Oh, interesting. So I... Um, I'm very familiar with the film, and I remember when it came out, and I was a little young. I was only, I think, 13, so it wouldn't have been something my mom would have let me see. Uh, but I had never seen it, and it was not what I expected. Same. Not at all. Uh, I thought it was going to be... I don't know what I thought it was going to be, actually. What did you think it would be? 
I thought it was going to be more sports or I mean it clearly is about basketball but but it's more about the hustle and it, it's more about kind of um maybe race relations than I was thinking even even despite the title like what it's doing was not what I was expecting with race. Yes, I think I thought it would be a little more substantial based on the title. Sort yeah, of speaking like, about race, like the Great White Hype or the Great White Hope, or and I think I thought it'd be more like a sports film, mm-hmm. like this person's trying out for the NBA or something. Mm-hmm. But really, it's just about Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson hustling like these street games mm-hmm. by presenting Woody Harrelson as this sort of like corny white dude who certainly can't play basketball. So then Wesley is like, "Well, I'll bet you with him on my team, I can beat you." But then Woody's character actually is quite talented at basketball. Um, I thought it was cute. Yeah. But the story is a little weak because they're in Los Angeles. Uh-huh. And I kept thinking, like, LA is a huge city. But how many like street games are happening that a word hasn't gotten around? Oh, there's a white dude. But there's this white dude who can fucking ball. Mm-hmm. And he's out here scamming fools. Mm-hmm. That to me seemed... Real weak. Again, how information spreads slowly. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, yeah, it, I can see it being remade, uh, perhaps. It was directed by Ron Shelton, who uh, uh, many, most of his films are sports-related. And, of course, his earlier film was Bull Durham with uh, Kevin Costner and Susan Tran and Tim Robbins, which I haven't watched in years, uh, baseball movie. I also did Tin Cup with Kevin Costner. Uh, there's something else big in there I'm forgetting, but... Moving on, we finished that uh, mini-series, The Staircase, on HBO. Directed by Antonio Campos, who's a, a director I, I quite like. Great cast in this, but... Uh, for people who aren't aware, there is a documentary on Netflix, I believe. Or is it HBO? I don't remember. There's a documentary, called I think, the called The Staircase. And it's about this man who, like, his wife is found dead at the bottom of the stairs... He's insisting she it was an accident, but then evidence leads to him being convicted of murdering her. And there are a couple of gags throughout the sort of story that make it even more interesting. But this docu-series, which stars Colin Firth and Tony Collette, I think it suffers from poor organization and then really not knowing not knowing how to deliver the gag. Because yeah. the gag is there are two gags. One is that this man was gay. Yeah. And the other gag is that he was involved in a situation with another woman who died in a very similar way. In Germany. In yeah. Germany, like 20 years prior. Mm-hmm. So, of course, depending on how you tell a story, those things can have a lot of impact or they can seem sort of like... Disjointed. Disjointed and tangential. And I think the miniseries failed to deliver these gags in a way that had impact. Then, I don't recall, because we watched the do- the documentary. That was a docu-series, actually. Yeah. We watched it. I don't recall in that docu-series certain plot points we find in the miniseries. One of which is this theory that like an owl attacked her. Mm-hmm. Also that the injuries that the wife sustained to her skull which were unique because they said like it wasn't blunt force trauma but then it also wasn't sort of something you'd see from her hitting her head on the stairs we find out that two men who this guy had had sex with because he was like on the dl Mm -hmm. doing some shit that well we can get into it 
uh, that two of the men who he had had sex with died with similar injuries. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't implicated in their deaths, but it's just very interesting. But it made hers not an anomaly. Right. So there are a lot of things that are very interesting that because this docu uh, or uh, this miniseries, I'm sure took liberties. It's like they really could have organized this so it really had more impact. So I was disappointed. Sure. But um, so by the end, oh, and then what is the French lady's name? Juliette Binoche. Juliette Binoche, who looks great. Yeah, she does. She plays the editor of the... So the, the miniseries acknowledges the fact that there was a documentary made. It's a big part of the miniseries. And Julia Binoche plays the editor of this documentary. And she falls in love with him. Mm-hmm. And like moves from Paris to wherever the hell... Durham, he, North Carolina. Oh yeah. my God. To like support him. And when he finally gets... He's allowed a retrial and he's uh, freed from prison after spending like 13 or 14 years. She's like, well, let's move to Paris Mm -hmm. because that's what he wanted to do. But of course, he had no intention of being with this woman. He was just taking her assistance. So the day before they're supposed to leave for Paris, he's like, yeah, I don't want to go. He said, I don't want to live with a woman any longer. Like he's clearly a gay man. It's Kevin Spacey. I just wish that because the miniseries took liberties, it really would have focused on this sort of like, like the sexuality of this man and the precarious circumstances under which his wife died. Instead of like, we spend so much time with Juliette Binoche and her relationship with him that makes no sense. Oh, right. And then, I mean, it's what, three episodes? Yes. That she, we're sitting there like, what the fuck are you doing? And you know, she's performing as she is, she's, you know, good at, but it's just like, oh God, it just seems so extra over this man. I would recommend watching the documentary first. Mm-hmm. And then if you're compelled by it, I would check out the miniseries, I but think- I don't think it... You know, and then you have Parker Posey in there, who adds the kind of a camp element. She's definitely campy in it. Who um, at Freda, who I do like. And t- I thought Tony Collette was quite good, as she's usually is. And Colin Firth. And there are components of the miniseries I liked. So one thing I did like was that there are three scenarios. One is that he killed her. Mm-hmm. Two is that she accidentally fell. Mm-hmm. And three is this theory of her being attacked by an owl. So the miniseries does show all three deaths, and they're pretty gruesome. Yeah. So I thought that was very well done, and I think Tony Collette did a very good job. And I actually felt really bad for her yes. character. Moving on, projects of interest. It's a double. It's a, a double entry of Zac Efron films. Oh, so the Iron Claw. Sean Durkin, who directed Martha Marcy May Marlene, and The Nest uh, is. <laughs> Directing a film called The Iron Claw, I think A24 uh, project that stars Zac Efron. It's about a dynasty of wrestlers from the 1960s. So we're going to get Zac Efron in a singlet. Probably. So people will like that. And the other one is a uh, Netflix comedy directed by Richard Legravenese, uh, also starring Nicole Kidman. Uh, He's more notable as a writer. Uh, His last couple of films, I didn't see his last one with Anna Kendrick from almost a decade ago. Beautiful Creatures is terrible. Uh, but I really like his debut back in 1998 with Queen Latifah and Holly Hunter. And I think Danny DeVito, which is called Living Out Loud, which I remember renting on VHS. Oh. Well, there are no entries in the obituary yes. section. Oh, yes, there is. I forgot to mention it. Jean-Louis Trintignant died. That name sounds familiar. Oh, he's been in hundreds of movies. Uh, he's... Uh, Amour, starring Isabelle Huppert and uh, Manuel Rivas, and he was recently in Happy End, the Haneke film. Uh, d- d- countless films. We saw something with him recently. 
Uh, I'm, I'm, I'll have to think about it, but... Well, he will be missed by you, certainly. In, well, he's in his 90s, but... Okay. All right. So, the secret movie, uh, we wanted to watch something black and gay, uh, since it's Pride Month and Juneteenth. Yes. So, you received the Criterion box set. Of the signifying works of Marlon Riggs. There is a passage that you read. Oh, I can't see this closely. Which... I'm going to read the entry about him. Okay. There has never been a filmmaker like Marlon Riggs, an unapologetic gay black man who defied a culture of silence and shame to speak his truth with, with resounding joy and conviction. An early adopter of video technology, Riggs employed a bold mix of documentary, performance, poetry, and music in order to confront the devastating legacy of racist stereotypes, the impact of AIDS on his community, and the very definition of what it means to be black. Uh, dot, dot, dot. So we watched uh, his 1989 documentary-style film called Tongues Untied. Which was caused quite a controversy because he uh, received uh, like state funds to make it and Pat Buchanan came out against it. Uh, it there were all kinds of about taxpayers' money being, being used to uh, produce filth and pornography. Well, I thought it was excellent. It's one of the best things I've seen in a long time. I thought it was excellent. I, I definitely think if you're a queer person of color, you, you must find this uh, film. Uh, and it's exactly what I just read. It's a, a mix of documentary performance and poetry with music. Uh, and it talks about racist stereotypes, the impact of AIDS, and the definition of what it means to be black. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, it's, it's, uh, it's all of that. Uh, I feel like I could talk for a long time about it, but I just wrote down a few notes. Because the focus of the film is there, there really isn't sort of a key person we follow as much as it is sort of like many black men telling their stories revolving around. Well, what it, including Riggs himself. Right. But sort of talking about sexuality growing up, racism in its various forms. Of course, there's a large component that speaks to HIV and AIDS. Um, because he himself died from AIDS complications at the age of 37 in 1994. And then community, which sort of revolves around like the ballroom scene at a point. Yeah. You see um, Willie Ninja in there. You do see Willie Ninja, who many of us know from... Uh, Paris is Burning. Paris is Burning. But I'm just going to start with some things that spoke to me, I guess. So I think just, you know, because I was attending gay bars in the late 90s, but certainly the gentleman who are depicted in this film are like 10 years older than I am. So I can only imagine what they experienced. But, you know, for people who aren't as aware, I think we got a glimpse of this in the FX series Pose. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure other films uh, and documentaries speak to this, but within the gay community, there's a lot of racism. Mm -hmm. And certainly gay bars did not welcome not only black people, but trans people, mm -hmm. drag queens, they were meant for like gay white men. Mm -hmm. So um, something that one of the gentlemen spoke about that I can relate to very much going to the gay bars in like the late 90s was that I was told by several people, because this was Las Vegas where I went to college, and there are several gay bars in Vegas, uh, 
But I was told by several people who I knew who worked in the bars, I used to date a bartender at one of the gay bars, that they avoided playing urban music because they didn't want to attract black people. Mm-hmm. And when there were too many black people in attendance, they would switch up the theme of the night. They would switch up the music to try to get them not to come. The Abbey has a history of that in L.A. too. So, um, you know, that's something that we've been dealing with for a long time. There are a lot of really cute flourishes in this film. Uh, We get a little sort of segment that plays on this idea of like the Institute of Snapthology. Yeah. And talking about how gay black men express themselves and then we get several guys like they're they're doing like different types of snaps yeah. which is just meant to be funny but just sort of like a way of expression um yeah it's it's playful and poetic and kind of erotic something else that really spoke to me is there is one gentleman who talks about moving to the castro and being this gay black man and he talks about the curse of like being attracted to white men that's marlon riggs that is him? Yeah. Walking up and down the Castro? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't realize that was him. That was him, yeah. He he recounts the story of when he was a little younger, before he moved to the Castro, I believe, mm-hmm. he was assaulted. In Hepzibah? By a group of men and was left bloody and beaten when, you know, this blonde, uh, blonde-haired, gray, green-eyed beauty, this white Adonis, this white angel... Um, you know, found him and befriended him. And there was no sort of physical attraction. Like, this man didn't show him anything but kindness. And that imprinted on him like a goddamn avatar mm-hmm. that that's that was what he loved. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I listened to... Oh, I can't pull it up because my computer's dead and I don't have access to my phone. But there's a podcast... Um, called uh, the, make, uh, the Making of Gay History. Mm-hmm. And you listen to one with this black uh, man who... Is it Boyd? Randy Boyd? Is he the one who played football? Yes. Mm-hmm. He, talk, yeah, he, he talked about that too. He yeah. has the exact same story mm-hmm. of, you know, having this... And I forget who it was. Oh, it was the guy from the Blue Lagoon. Yes. Mm-hmm. Who's that actor? Christopher... Whatever. Of like that being the sort of the first image of like someone he found attractive and then always having that as like the ideal person he wanted to be with. Christopher Atkins. So Riggs talks about that and then moving to the Castro and realizing that he was not welcome there. Oh, I, he, I like what he said about there's no reflection. He was an alien unseen. He was an invisible man. So going but, back to Ralph Ellison, you know. But I wanted to talk about that too because I think like... Growing up as a gay, you know, coming into my gay adulthood as a black man in the late 90s in an environment where there weren't that many black people, it was mostly gay white men. I think I also felt like so complicated because he also talks about like seeing other gay black men and then not acknowledging each other Mm -hmm. because we don't want to see that thing in each other. And I didn't have that feeling as a teenager. I think I felt more like there aren't that many of us here and then we're not that kind to each other. Mm-hmm. We're not like befriending each other. Because you're most cruel to what's what you're most like. And then I always felt like there was some sort of weird competition. Like, yeah. like because as gay black men, depending on the space we're in, you know, unless I lived in Atlanta, 
it's like usually if I'm out at a gay space, there aren't that many people who look like me there. So then when there are a handful in a room of 200, you know, if there are 100 people in a room, two of us might be black. Then if it's gay men, then it's like we get clumped as one. And then I think that pits us against each other subconsciously. Like that colonialist mentality of, so, of ascending the hierarchy. Yeah. And it's really interesting to hear, because, you know, we often don't get to hear gay black voices. So to hear these men in this, well, specifically Riggs talking about it really spoke to me because it's like, yeah, I just because of like where I was living. And then after college, I moved to Minnesota, which was very white. Mm hmm. And only, you know, not knowing that many black people and the black people I did know and tried to befriend, it was a very small group. And then we got clumped into a group. And then I feel like there was a lot of weird, I mean, I can go on and on. And I think they address this in this film is about, there's a lot of racism. What spoke to me about this film and what I think he does so perfectly is describe how difficult it was to be a gay black man in the 80s. Because you're confronted with systemic racism. Mm -hmm. You're also confronted with racism within the black community, mm -hmm. which also has strong ties to religion. Mm -hmm. So there's that. Then you're confronted with HIV and AIDS. So it feels like everything about who you are is under attack. Well, and is meant and to then, fail. Yeah. And then he talks about how there's nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. Like there is no safe space. And I also relate to that now. I feel like, I don't know where I belong. I've never felt like there is a space that feels like mine, like that I'm there and I feel like the way I look and the person I am is welcome. I often feel like in gay spaces, because it's mostly not people of color, that when people are nice to me, they just like how I look. And they're associating a stereotype about people who look like me mm -hmm with who I am as an individual and they think they're going to get something from me mm -hmm. that is not unique to me. Sure. And I think I struggle. I've always struggled with that. Like that, you know, who I am as a person is trumped by the fact that I'm just a gay black man. Mm -hmm. And well, he, one thing that he said talking about his childhood is he was cornered by identities. I never wanted to claim. And what did you uh, interpret that as? That everybody's putting, everybody's defining your identity for you and demeaning you for it. Yeah. 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 Calling you. Well, then there's a really good scene with a couple of people talking about being called faggot and sissy and some other word, punk. Mm -hmm. And. Pejoratives. And I thought that the one person made a good comment of like, you know. I, when people call me that, I ask them, what does that mean to you? Because mm -hmm. I know what it means to me, and I am that. Mm -hmm. But what does it mean to you? And then if you think about it, it's like, why do we give that word so, like, why do we give those words so much power against us when it's like, I don't even know what that means to you. And if it's what it means to me, it's not a lie. Like, you're not hurting me with my truth. You know? Mm -hmm. Which I think for a long time was so scary to tell people, well, I'm gay. Yeah. Even though I'm obviously gay. Well, because in it also like, you know, the epistemology of the closet. You don't get to just come out once. You will continue to come out. You have to constantly. Throughout your entire life in every scenario. Like, but the way I look at it is there's some kind of power in it of like 
confronting, forcing people to be confronted with the reality of the world they live in. Well, and like, then you, it reinforces your sense of identity as you go along as well. That's true. From from being from being shameful about it to being to owning it, being proud of who you are. Yeah, and I think the the fatigue of constantly having to come out is balanced with knowing that I'm forcing people to see my reality. Like maybe you don't like it, maybe you don't approve of it, but it's like you're going to have to deal with it. And if I have to listen to you talk about your husband and your kids and, you know, it's like you People present themselves in a way that's like, this is normal. Mm -hmm. And it's like normal to you. Mm -hmm. I actually think it's quite strange the life you live. Like, so as I get older, I, I think being more explicit about who I am and what my normal is balances out the fact that I have to constantly sort of address the fact that I'm like, I'm not straight. So it, it, Marlon Riggs is a testament to what experimental film can look like too because I, I think you say that and we've seen so many examples of where you know there's interesting thoughts and ideas but like a flawed presentation there was nothing flawed about this i wouldn't even call this experimental i think this is just a really excellent use of i i think it's like someone has a a, a vision a vision like and he's, a an, voice. He, he's definitely an artist this man had something to say and he knew how to say it well mm -hmm. with the combination of poetry, oh, the, really effective song selections, yep. and people getting people on camera who really... Uh, well, just think of what he did with Willie Ninja as compared to Paris is Burning, the, like captivating slow motion. Like it's a completely different presentation. Well, the, you know, Paris is Burning is you know a masterpiece because of its um relevance to... i agree i agree so but, uh, but 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 clearly the documentarian exploited a community not not you know exploit is all, not always negative but that's yeah. what she did like yeah. she want she found something she was fascinated by she was fascinated yeah. by these faggoty ass black people and these trans people however she referred to them back in the early 80s i don't know what kind of language she used but she was fascinated by them and she wanted to record them like fucking animals in the serengeti so i'm not trying to minimize she, she her interviewed intentions. them in a way that wasn't it wasn't just that no it wasn't but it i also in the back of my mind always i i can't help but think as a black person like people's fascination with me often makes me feel like i'm some sort of like like exotic animal mm -hmm. sure the way people treat me on a regular basis in 2022 even after the pandemic is like not after we're still in COVID's still a thing but the fact that we can now be out and i think the way people interact with me i still see in their eyes and in the way that they the questions they ask that they have access to someone they wouldn't normally have access to and they're fascinated and good for you but yeah, that doesn't make me feel good but I because think, I don't see myself as like this like other thing. People make me feel othered, mm -hmm. but I feel like I'm just a person trying to live. And then I'm constantly reminded that I look different. My skin's different. Like, and I'm not talking like these are random occasional things. This is like all the time. Yeah. The last time I went out by myself, several people came, were like talking to me and like saying weird things to me and like, Someone like touched my arm and was saying like, oh, like your skin is so like soft or something. And then I was like, what? And then like, you know, like don't touch me. And 
He was like, oh, I didn't realize that your skin would be soft. Uh, and I'm just like, what does that even mean? Like, my arm looked exactly like his. I don't have hair. My body's not hairy. And neither was his. Mm-hmm. So what's the difference between our arms? They look exactly the same. Except mine is darker than yours. He was, I mean, he was, but he was trying to signify that you're exotic. You know, the, 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 the problem with this that I think, you know, and I'm sure many, particularly black women, can relate to being in a space or an environment where, let's say, white women want to question your hair, mm-hmm. and particularly your hair. How'd you get that to look like that? Right. Like- and... That is a very, I mean, that's similar, but a little different because they're more fascinated by you in a, in, a, in a sort of objective way. But I think it's complicated being a gay black man in gay spaces because I'm getting the same bullshit, except that you also, there, there's something in there that you find attractive. Mm-hmm. So you're also touching me, be, you know, because if you thought I was ugly or unattractive, you wouldn't be rubbing on me. Right. So then that makes it a little extra complicated because then I feel like, do you just like me because I'm brown? And then I feel... It's very rare. And if I feel like if you had the opportunity or made the opportunity to ask those questions in those spaces, you'd you know, be surprised at their reaction. Well, I have. I have over the years. But and don't you find it like usually people are taken aback? If people you are always that. taken aback. They're always shocked. Mm-hmm. And the comment is like... You know, they're Cluck very, the pearls. <laughs> they're, well, they're very preoccupied about explaining that they're not racist. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, I'm implying you're racist. I'm saying that you seem fascinated by me because I'm black. And it seems like the way you're treating me that you think that I have certain attributes and a certain personality that you expect from anyone who looks like me. Mm-hmm. And then I think when you confront, when people are confronted with that, it gets, yeah, it... It's very interesting, but you know, throughout my life, I haven't felt like, more often than not, I feel like that's the energy I'm getting from people, that you don't like me because I'm Joseph. And I think part of that, you know, what, what watching Tongues and Tide reminded me of too is like all of this anger and trauma that gets passed over because things transition, like, like you know, the AIDS crisis, we, we had the cocktail and it, it's like things cooled, but there was still all this trauma that we never really dealt with and all, all of these terrible things and all of these people dying. And it, like the pandemic is the same way. It's like we're, we're coming, it's, it's cooling, but we've never really, we haven't really dealt as a, we are, right. want to do. We don't deal with the kind of the the cracks under there. So everything's going to scab over, but we still have all of these things going on underneath the surface that really are affecting us and our behaviors. And we are living in a place now where social media has made it so you can basically order people on a plate. So instead of focusing on fetishization and and um, the exploitation of brown bodies, now it's become this normal thing that's normalized in a, this kind of preference scenario where it's just like, I just like that. But not, you know, Riggs has a, uh, one of his quotes in San Francisco about uh, specifically taking, like, pre- cruising white men, a flavor that was not his own without bothering, with, like, avoiding asking Whoa, the question, why? That, no, nobody's forcing each other to ask, like, why? Listening to him say that, I sort of had an epiphany because I thought, I wonder if part of, because we all, you know, I mean, we all need to take a look at our behaviors and and the meaning behind them and, or the meanings behind them and meaning behind them. I'm not saying that right. But anyway, when he said that, I was thinking, I wonder if 
sometimes my sort of like, um, you know, like if a 22 year old white guy is, is like trying to get my attention and they, why do I entertain them? And I wonder sometimes, like after hearing him say that, and then wonder sometimes, when he said it, it made me think, I wonder if sometimes it's because that's something that wasn't available to me when I was 22. Mm -hmm. When I was 22, I mean, it was like, I was like, I remember people saying really awful things about people who liked me. Mm -hmm. Like that it was weird mm -hmm. that they liked me. If they weren't black. Yeah. Which was, I mean, there weren't any black people around where in the little gay community I was in. So it was mostly not black people who would show some interest in me. And then the things they would hear. And some of them were also perpetuating the concerns I have now, which is that you're just fetishizing me because right. I'm black. So, you know, whatever. But certainly the idea of like some 22 year old, like white guy, like just some regular ass white dude being interested in me was just not an option. Like that never happened because it was like, I'm a different species. Mm -hmm. I I couldn't possibly relate to you on any level. So I wonder if now 20 plus years later, do I find, do I entertain that? Because I think that's something I didn't have access to. So I'm curious, like I am curious, like what would a 22 year old, like white guy find about me, like find interesting about me? Like, because then it gets complicated because then it's like, well, I'm also older. So is it like a daddy thing? And that, which is certainly not my vibe. But um, when he said that, I thought that makes perfect sense as to why maybe many of us, if we're talking about gay black men, sort of subject ourselves to that environment. Mm -hmm. Because we also don't have a choice. If you want to, you know... If you're gay and you want to be in a safe space, you seek out gay spaces. But most gay spaces are mostly gay white guys. So, unless, it, unless it's a specific night, yeah. Unless it's I a mean, specific night. Jules Catch One hasn't been operational for a while. <laughs> I mean, unless you're in a... I mean, even a bigger city like LA, there are no gay black... You'd have to go to Atlanta. You'd have to... Or I mean, DC. There are nights. There mm -hmm. are nights when you might find a higher concentration of gay black men. But even living in LA, I don't feel like... I certainly don't feel like out of place... Well, there's, it, it's... Because there's enough diversity. And anonymity in this city. That yeah. I, but, but I still often, I mean, I still, I think, have a lot of, uh, you know, trauma about questioning why people find me interesting. I think it's okay to question why, though. Because I, I want to be liked because I'm a nice, fun person. Because you're, well, because of you as the individual. But that's not the case, because if we're talking about apps and being out at a bar, you're only seeing a picture of me or you're only seeing me stand in the corner. So you don't know anything about me except how I look. And then I can tell by the energy people bring to me that you're fetishizing me. Mm -hmm. You think there's something about, you think I'm going to offer you something that you have determined all people who look like me offer. But that's, that's what, where the, the, the apps have kind of set us back in that way. Like we're lacking something that we were, I think on the, on a course of developing but I think Mr. Riggs would be happy to know if he were alive today that I do think there have been improvements. I do think that I have interacted with, you know, if we're talking about gay white guys who don't make me feel as gross as they used to. It definitely feels more like you see me as a person. Mm -hmm. 
like, yeah, you like how I look, but then it's like, that's fine. I mean, there, there's, there's nothing wrong with wanting someone's attention if you like how they look. But I get, it doesn't feel the same as it used to. It doesn't feel like, oh, it's because I'm black that you like me. And then I also think the way they talk to me is different. Like, oh, you understand. You're not asking the weird questions that yeah, people yeah, asked yeah. me 20 years ago about my hair and mm-hmm. about my smells. And yeah. Like, you know, I mean, I always think like the way people talk about people used to always comment on how I smell like, oh, you smell nice. And it's like, oh, because they were expecting like, not you, to. like, do you expect me to smell like cigarettes and cocoa butter? I don't understand what you think I'm going to smell Cocoa like. butter smells good. I... And I wear cocoa butter to this day, but it's like. Just the little sort of like nope. microaggressions I that people would present to me. Back, or... when, back when we first started dating in Minnesota, uh, you know, as, as a white person, I, you know, you learn about race and I'm ignorant about receiving it or, or being confronted by it. Because I remember us dating and some coworkers, friend of mine said, was making comments about me, about how I don't look like somebody that would date a, a black person. And I remember I was so naive and my self-esteem was so low. I was like, oh, that means like... That meant something about me because I, I, I must be like such a square. <laughs> Not, never realizing that it's like, oh, you think that the type of white person that's going to date a black person is, like less is, is trash. Uh, well, that's the other thing that he talks about in this film is like it also chips away at your self-esteem because if I'm constantly... Because the other reality too is like, you know, whatever anyone thinks I look like, whether you think I'm ugly or not, is like I think over the years, you know... If, if we're all sort of conditioned to think like white is right, right? White is right. White is what you want. White, white is the pinnacle. That's the goal is to have a white man. Then the quality of the type of white men who would then want to interact with me is like, well, you know, if I'm a five, you're a four or a three. Like, does that make sense? Uh-huh. Like, I feel like it also would chip away at like, because I think a lot of white men take advantage of that. Like, they shoot for the fucking stars. Because they know, like... And I think it was a little more insidious 20 plus years ago when I was in that game. Of, like, I think a lot of white guys knew that black men and any man of color wanted a white guy. Mm-hmm. So it's like... So that adds value to them. So now some unattractive man is trying to holler at me and it's like, on what planet... <laughs> Uh, I mean, unless you're trying to pay some bills here, I don't understand why, which is another, I don't want to go down that chapter of my life, but I think, I think I see that less and less that people are sort of wanting to have genuine connections with someone who they think people are interact. People are seem more concerned about having like a genuine interaction, even if it's just sexual, like having some sort of chemistry. And whereas I think before it was just like, it's this thing that I want and I'm going to like, like, I'm just going to, I don't know. I feel like I'm rambling, but you're not, it's fine. I, it's just, this was a very powerful film. And a lot of the things that were said, I really related to the last note I had was that um, there's a segment talking about HIV and AIDS where they talk about how sex will kill us. Mm-hmm. And that also I can relate to Same, yeah. being sexually active in the nineties and just thinking every interaction was going to be the end of me mm-hmm. and having that pressure on top of knowing that I'm not desirable. And if I am, I'm just 
like a novelty, which lends itself to thinking I'll never find like someone who really cares about me because they're only going to like me because I'm brown. Well, they're a lot, you know, so then I'm just like disposable. And I think that's how I conducted myself for many years. Like I'm disposable. So then I didn't take people seriously. And I was very much the type who was like, well, if you want to do something nice for me, you can have my time. And if not, then bug off, mm -hmm. buzz off. Like, so that was 10 years of my life was, yeah, if you want to pay some bills and take me here and fly me there and buy me this, then sure, I'll, I'll, I'll spend time with you. But that's the only way I would spend time with people because I always thought I was disposable. Like what any black guy will do. So what power do I have? Mm -hmm. So might as well just get what I can get right now. I think things have gotten better. Oh, good. Because it's not... I mean, I, You mean personally? <laughs> well, I mean, I still, you know, do I feel like I'm, you know, I still have the feeling that, you know, if people like me, it's probably not because of who I am as a person. But that could be a lot of us. I think, you know? I think that is, you know, can be extended further right. in, the, in the gay community right. beyond, beyond color lines as well, though. Because a lot of gay men sort of fall into that pit that I think I allowed myself to for a very brief period. Me, and to be clear, what I mean is that I did, I have had moments where I did entertain someone who was very clear that they prefer black men. Mm -hmm. But at that point in my life, I didn't understand why that's so problematic. Mm -hmm. I think that we see people today who allow themselves or certain attributes they possess to be exploited. So you find a lot of like gay guys who have really nice butts who are just like, I'm just, this is going to, how this is going to define this my, this is going to define my experience as a gay man. And I'm just going to be a power bottom. And that's all I offer to anyone. That's all I can be to anyone. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think we see that in a lot of different people, types of people. And I, and I, I don't allow myself to be exploited in that way knowingly, but I still have remnants of that where I feel like, well, you know, I, I feel like the only, like people only care about me based on how I look, which is not always, that doesn't always work for me because a lot of people don't find me attractive. And then that feeds into why I think I don't have a lot of friends because people don't find me appealing. So they don't want to be around me. So there's a lot of, or they don't, if they can't possess you. So, or that. So I that's mean, why platonic friends are hard. So getting back to tongues untied, I just thought like, as I was watching it and after I finished it, like I can't even imagine transporting myself 10 years earlier, mm -hmm. you know, like being in college in the nineties was such a struggle for all the reasons Riggs explored mm -hmm. and then fucking imagine pressing we rewind 10 years well that's why when you i know you've made comments in the past like oh if we'd like been of age in the 70s like uh-uh no no i mean yeah it, there was this fabulousness going on but also mm, no. i always think the 70s because i feel like i would have before aids the and... vibe of like the music and the clothing and the hair i think that would have been my i would have shown then but Yes, but all but of yes, those, of course, all of those problems were even of course, more magnified. The political and social climate was not ideal. It's better today, so I think he would. I, I think he would, he would be happy to know that a lot of the things he expressed, the, the feelings he had, would be better today. Mm -hmm. So it's sad that so many beautiful men died at the hands of something that didn't need to happen the way it did. Mm -hmm. And you know, because he died uh, in his youth. 
you know, we don't know Marlon Riggs the way we should. There's nobody been trying to champion his work because everybody's dead. Everybody's dead from that. The other poet that is featured heavily in Tongues and Tide is Essex Hemphill, and he died uh, at the age of 38 a year after. Yeah. You know, so, so there's nobody out here championing these people. They don't have families. They don't have estates. Uh, you know, which, which... so yeah, so I'm happy that Criterion has taken the time to put his works together. Wow, nice look up Marlon Riggs. Yeah, I know there's, like, I don't know how the Criterion channel works if it's on demand, but if you can find his work, I would, I would definitely recommend watching Tongues Untied. I plan on watching the other. Yeah. The box that you have has shorts and... Um, if you like him, I also re recommend from a decade earlier the works of Bill Gunn, who did Ganja and Hess, and uh, Personal Problems. Uh, both of those are also available on Blu-ray, I think, from Kino Lorber. Uh, I mean, there's just, there's just so much. There's just so many artists that have been, you know, obfuscated by time and circumstance. All right. Well, we need to shut down. What, what what do you want to talk about? Like, what have you been reading? What's your quote? Um, I finished reading the uncollected essays of Elizabeth Hardwick, which I found fascinating. Uh, she reawakened a need for me to watch that Edie Falco series about the Menendez trial. Because um, at, at some of her best moments in these essays from this collection were about OJ and, and going back to the 90s. Uh, she had a... <clears throat> essay on Faye Dunaway that I thought was fascinating because it was written in 1978, you know, before the undoing of Ms. Dunaway, uh, and speaks very much to kind of what, what Richard Dyer would coin around then as reception theory. Uh, but I like that she admires Faye Dunaway, and I wanted to read this passage, but she is not reassuring. The sense of equality, not to mention domination, may be a bit chilling to the conventional, particularly to the conventional man. But... To the thoughtful, the electricity of the negative qualities gives her an extraordinary interest. Oh, God. <laughs> I also liked uh, from an essay called When to Cast Out, Give Up, Let Go, she's talking about love, and she says, um, love is an ethical idea. There's always renunciation as well as possession hidden in its heart. Um, so, yes, and, and through her, I, learning about, I didn't realize that Mary McCarthy uh, and Lillian Hellman had this long, ongoing um, fight uh, that I'm interested in reading more about. And it made me uh, also pick up a book I've had for a long time. I remember buying this book on the corner of Snelling and University in St. Paul uh, back when I was in college, uh, a collection of essays by Camille Paglia called uh, Vamps and Tramps. Uh, she is a fascinating person. And, I, and again, we're even reading through her introduction of this because I've not read her big, her 700-page tome, Sexual Persona, uh, which I plan on one day. Uh, like I didn't know she was so vehemently against post-structuralism uh, and so many things that made me think about post-structuralism and post-modernism and how you know rewrite the danger of rewriting history and and kind of how that filters into because she's a very much pop culture uh, speaking to what's going on in pop culture and I'm thinking about all of this these these narratives that are obsessed with the multiverse and how to me that kind of dangerously rewrites this this self-consumed, universe anyway that's that's what i'm doing okay well we have to end anything else no bye